Hey, everybody. Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learning so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Jessica Kim, co-founder and CEO of Ionicare. Now, how great is this? Ionicare is a digital platform for family caregivers, and it connects them with every resource they could possibly need to care for their loved ones. Jessica founded Ionicare because she herself was a caregiver in her mother's last days of life. She experienced for herself just how frustrating and exhausting and isolating caregiving can be. And she knew that there had to be a better way. Now, that's how great entrepreneurs think. They truly care about their customers' problems on a human level. And then they set out to solve those problems with excellence. So if you run a business yourself, if you dream about doing that someday, or if your company serves customers in any way, shape, or form, this conversation will inspire you on how to solve your customers' problems at a human level. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Jessica Kim. Jessica, there's no doubt that you are a serial entrepreneur and you definitely are one of the most creative persons that, that I know. And I can't wait for everyone to hear your entire story. But, but first, can you tell us about your latest venture, Ionicare, and, and, and how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for having me on, David. Um, so I started Ionicare because I was thrust into being a caregiver. I did not intend to start a business. Uh, so my mom had pancreatic cancer for about seven and a half years. And, um, you know, my dad actually lovingly cared for her for many of those years. But eventually, you know, he's 10 years older and he was working full time and he was completely burnt out himself. And so uh, I just came right in and I was thrust into that role of being their caregiver. They moved in with me. I was working full time. My kids at that time were 10, 7, and 5. And uh, I just had to navigate all of her medical care. I was performing all the nursing duties. I was pumping her stomach several times a day um, and feeding her and bathing her. And, uh, you know, eventually, you know, she passed away uh, in my home in 2017. And it was the loneliest, hardest time in my life. Um, And I remember in deep grief, the thing that I felt most was frustration. I was so frustrated. Um, I've been an entrepreneur. I've been in the tech space. I knew the technology was there. I knew the funding was there. I knew that we could reach people in their homes. And I was so frustrated that there were millions of caregivers, and yet it is so hidden and it's completely underserved. Um, and so, you know, my co-founder Steve Lee and I partnered together. We dug into it and we realized we we need to solve this. And so uh, that's kind of why we started Ionicare. You know, as I understand it, it's a huge market. Like there's 43 and a half million caregivers out there. And and so, how have you gone about innovating? to give these caregivers practical solutions you can actually use? Well, I think innovation always starts 
with learning and understanding. Um, and so you're right. You know, when I always start with the problem. So one out of seven people in the U.S. alone have a type of chronic condition where they become reliant on a caregiver. So we're talking about Alzheimer's, cancer, disability, um, stroke. And when we often think about these conditions, we tend to focus on the clinical sides of things. You know, what did the doctor say? What's the surgery? What's the medication? But over 90% of the actual time being cared for happens in the home, not in the hospital. And they're typically cared for by family caregivers who are unsupported, unpaid, and untrained. And so, David, it's actually 54 million family caregivers now. (laughs) And the most recent Blue Cross Blue Shield study said that 61% of Americans consider themselves a caregiver of some shape or form. Um, And so, uh, you know, this results in major societal and institutional issues. And the things on the business side that we're really focusing on are the 33 billion of productivity loss for employers, employees, because most caregivers are uh, working at the same time. Um, And then the 50 billion uh, healthcare costs that are often avoidable. Um, And so the question is, after understanding all of that, we said, well, what do we do? What do family caregivers need help with most? And what they need help with most are the everyday tasks. It's the um, administrative work. It's the daily care. It's the bathing. It's the feeding. It's, um, uh, you know, all the financial management. But then they also need systemic support. um, And that's why we're really working with employers and health plans, because until we really change the system, we can't really serve family caregivers. And we may think of all of these things as non-clinical aspects of care that may not be as big of a deal, but it's actually the social determinants of health that impact 80%, 80% of someone's wow. health outcome. And so that is why the key role of the caregiver is so important. But then our aha moment. So again, I always start with, you know, what do we know and what are we learning? But our aha moment was that there are thousands of these resources and services that already exist to serve caregivers. Uh, yet they are completely segregated. It's um, really hard to find. They're hidden. They're hidden in buckets like healthcare institutions, employer benefits, um, you know, even your own social circles and local resources. And so uh, the end user does not know where to begin and they are thrust into it into a very emotional experience. And so that's where we come in. Tell me about Ionicare as a name. What's the meaning behind that? Yes. So Ionicare, what we really understood was at the core of caregiving, it's a very isolating experience. We don't really talk about it in our culture. We don't know how to support uh, caregivers in the same way that we have learned to support parents. Um, and so the I-A-N-A of Ionicare stands for I am not alone. And so it is the core principle of how we do everything is that we say, how do we build technology solutions and bring real communities together so caregiver do not do this alone. Um, and so that's that's kind of the essence of everything we do. I was thinking about your business. It seems to be that probably one of the biggest barriers to usage is just caregivers and most people just have a hard time asking for help. Exactly. Are you finding that to be the case? Yes. And actually, that's the perfect segue into what we actually do. And that's the first layer of support because that's where people begin. And so, you know, we are this one platform that 
integrates all the different layers of support. And the first one is your friends and family, your personal social circles. Um, the number one piece of advice that social workers will tell you is to ask your friends and family for help. But it is very awkward. It's socially not accepted in our culture. Um, and so what we did is we first said, let's unlock that. And we created this platform where you invite your friends and family and neighbors um, who say, yes, I want to help you. How many times have we been on both sides of, oh my gosh, David, let me know what I can do to help, right? right. And nothing happens because things are so vague. So once you invite them onto the team, we walk them through how to get meals, rides, respite care, pet care, child care, house errands, grocery shopping. And you fill out this very quick kind of request that gets blasted out to your team. And then you, the team members see everything on one screen. They click one button that says, I got this. And all the details go on both people's calendar with that one click. And so what we realized was that it's very awkward to say, hey, David, what are you doing tonight? Um, do you want to you wanna make me dinner? It's like so awkward. I would never ask you that. But I can create this buffer using technology to blast it out. And then you as a supporter, you look and you say, you know what? I can actually do that tonight. And I click, I got this. And, you know, that's how we've been able to, um, you know, deliver thousands of meals and rides and all this daily help. Um, so that's kind of like the first, that's the first layer that we started, but we also realized that that's not enough help for especially caregiving situations that last for four plus years. Um, and so we work with employers where we integrate all of their benefits into the platform uh, because they're available to you and often free to you. And then we put zip code based local resources, almost like a Yelp, if you will, um, onto our platform. We have our own expert content. And then you can even connect with a human caregiving coach to really process everything that you've been going through. Um, and so Again, it's all the different layers that people need throughout the different phases of the journey, all in one app. You have such a big idea and you have such a huge market. You launch Ionicare, COVID hits. Yeah. You, you know, how did that impact your business and, and how'd you scramble? Yeah. You know, COVID is so devastating on so many levels and, um, and, you know, I think, you know, for caregivers, we always say it's not a new thing. Uh, uh, caregivers have been doing this and being isolated in the home for, for many, many years. Um, but it has made it worse. The stress and mental health is um, completely through the roof. Um, but what it has done actually has accelerated this awareness on a global level that there are caregivers. So for the longest time, people in caregiving have been trying to be on their soapbox saying, do you know that there are 43.5 million caregivers, of which now it's 54 million caregivers? And most people say, I don't see it. What? I don't, that must not be a big deal. They're home. But because of the pandemic uh, with COVID-19, the world has is now awake to all the care that happens in the home, to our elderly, to our um, vulnerable populations who have chronic conditions, now they are the highlight of what everyone's talking about to protect them. And so we are leveraging this opportunity um, and this momentum of awareness to say, yes, finally, let's build this tangible support for caregivers uh, that have always deserved this type of support. Uh, so it actually has accelerated our yeah, our business uh, tremendously, the need. We are trying to keep up with all the caregivers that are on our platform. Um, we locked in our first major enterprise deal nine months ahead of schedule. And we all know those contracts can take, you know, 12 to 18 months. And we were 
able to go through all of it because they saw the need uh, that was so great. Now, what do you recommend uh, to caregivers that are impacted by COVID? Just, you know, one or two big things that you, you recommend. I think the, the, the first major thing is know that you're not alone. Even though you are, you feel so isolated and you feel that all the typical resources are now restricted even more, um, with the beauty of technology, you can still get a lot of support. So we always say care without contact. Um, so we have these tremendous stories where a caregiver is on our app um, in a very kind of intense situation. They had their personal social circle team grow up to 120 people, um, all local and remote, and they were able to get 540 meals delivered all from friends and family. Uh, They were able to get gift cards sent. And so they felt this outpouring of just all the support, despite physically being so socially distanced. And so that's the first thing is that you're not alone. And technology can help kind of bring people together at this time. Um, And, uh, you know, our care managers can uh, help you navigate through all the different restrictions that you're facing. You know, how much does your passion for loving others and and being compassionate, how much does that drive you in this situation? Because, you know, you're also a hard driving business person. I mean, we're going to talk about, but you got an incredible track record of building businesses. So, you know, what is this special emotive thing that you have? How does that, how does that really make you tick? It is everything. And I mean, everything. Um, it is the core. It is our fuel. It is our center. Um, you know, my co-founder, Steve Lee, and I always say that there are two major truths to Ayana Care. One, we are highly empathetic. Um, we truly know and care to the point where we say we love our caregivers. And because that dedication is so strong, um, that is what makes us decide what feature to launch. That is what makes us decide what's priority is how do we serve, uh, you know, our, our caregivers that we have so much love for. Um, and we care for each other as a team. Um, and I, we always say, you know, you're not working for me. I'm not hiring you. I may be your manager, but you're not working for me. We are all working for this mission that we feel so convicted by. And we need to call each other out. We need to, you know, link arms. We need to high five. We need to um, keep each other sharp because it's the mission we're going after. Um, And so empathy and love is the core of everything that we do. But then the second thing is we work really, really hard. (laughs) Um, We strive for excellence. Uh, the reason why we strive for excellence is because if we're not excellent, we let our caregivers down or our partners down or our customers down. And so it's this hand in hand that you can be very heart mission driven, but because that is your core, that's why you work so hard, right? Where it's not this hustle culture to have this badge and to say, oh yeah, I don't get a lot of sleep. I'm such a hardcore person and, you know, <laughs> crush Red Bull over my head. Um, no, the reason why I work so hard is because people are relying on us and we care so much about them and that, and that's what's going to drive us. So it's those two things that drive us. Your passion is is so contagious, and, and I'm sure it's inspiring to everybody that works with you. You know, and shifting a little bit back more to the hard stuff of your business, you sure. know, what have you learned, and 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 how are you evolving your free app? 
you got an incredible app. I mean, I checked yes. it out, but you know, you've this had to be a major learning process. What's the what's yes. the single biggest thing you've learned about that? Uh, so the first, the major thing we learned about that is we knew that that wasn't going to be our business model, the free app, but we knew because yeah, we're so centered on loving our caregiver, we had to start there. And we wanted our insights and everything to be say, to, to start with, how do we serve you? And uh, so that free app has evolved where we said, actually, the friends and family is not enough. You need other resources. You need your benefits. You need your local resources. You may even need a coach. And so uh, it was through our end user insight and uh, collaboration with our caregivers that we've built all these other layers out, which made sense then to work with employers. So our business model is employers and health plans pay us to integrate all of their benefits into our platform. So then the utilization rates go higher so they can see the impact of these benefits that they're paying for with the people that they are also serving. And so what we love about it is that family caregivers have enough on their plate. They're already doing $470 billion worth of care for our society, really being unpaid. Um, so we didn't want to charge them, but our, uh, you know, we have partners like employers and health plans that have an incentive to take care of their employees and members. And so that's our business model. So we've learned so much, um, but it, the root of it was starting with then caregivers. So now you, you, you mentioned a little earlier that you got your first customers well before you thought. You yeah. You, yes. Why? Why do you think that happened? What did you do as a leader to make well, that happen? I have to say, uh, you know, it is public. Like our first customer is Anthem Insurance, and you know they're the second largest insurance company. They've been tremendous partners. I think they're a thought leader in uh, in, in caregiving and social determinants of health. Uh, so we did a study together. So they believed in us enough to say, okay, let's see you know, if, if this is, if people like it, if people will use it, if it really achieved the ROI that we were expecting. And so we were able to see from that study that we were able to reduce by 83% people taking any time off from work because they had this support system. We were able to prove that 30% reduction of stress levels of these caregivers, especially during COVID, um, and then higher satisfaction of and loyalty to the employer. And so we were able to prove those kind of metrics. Um, and then so that combined with everything that was happening with the pandemic, with the innovative kind of approach of Anthem, allowed this to accelerate. And they've been tremendous partners. Um, so yeah, we were expecting to get our platform built out with all the other layers and start selling this quarter um, to other large employers. Um, but we we launched two weeks ago uh, live. We have hundreds of people on the uh, platform already. Um, and so we're, we're just... Uh, we're so excited that we have this privilege to serve them. So your business is, is already taking off. And you're also, I, I read where you're already winning uh, national awards for integrated digital solutions. And what advice can you give other leaders on how to build digital capability? Because you, you've got this down. Well, well, I think we're always still learning. Um, but I used to be intimidated when we said, okay, what does this look like digitally? And what I realized, and this may be my anthropological roots, but it ultimately, technology and digital, these are channels, these are tools, just like anything else. What you really have to focus on is the human problem, the human experience, the human perspective, the human behavior change, the desires, the feelings, 
especially if you think about caregiving, it's not just logistical. There's a lot of family dynamics and this is life and death at, at many times. And until you need to focus on those things. And then when you really understand those core um, principles, core convictions, the desires, then you look at all your tools and say, how do we get them from here to here so they can flourish? And digital is a major uh, tool right now because it makes everything accessible and scalable. Now we can serve all levels of employees, not just the C-suite. Um, and so technology is a great tool, but don't, I would say my biggest thing is don't get caught up in, it has to be digital just for digital sake or just we need to be relevant. We are still human, flesh, skin, like <laughs> blood, you know, emotions, like root yourself in that and view digital as a tool. Uh, that's great advice. And, and you, you've mentioned your, your co-founder, Steve Lee. Yeah. You have a really powerful relationship with him. Who does what in, in the business and, and uh, how do you two stay on the same page? Because it's hard to be co-anything. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he is amazing. So Stephen Lee, uh, and he knows I sing his praises. We are so complimentary as co-founders. We're 50-50 co-founders. Um, and he always says, if he was here, he would say, uh, look at my face. This is a tech and operational face. <laughs> um, and he calls himself a savvy geek or something like that. I think he's pretty cool, but he's an MIT grad, tech genius. Like, um, But he, we together are very values aligned. And so we bring different views to the big picture decisions and vision. And we always have healthy debates and get to a better place together. And then when it's time to execute, we have our own areas where he does, you know, the, the um, well, the product we'll do together because a lot of it is core insight on the human behavior and, you know, the UX, um, you know, I'll have a lot of input and the words that we choose. But then the way it goes from, you know, our, our sketches to, uh, you know, make sure it, it works with all the data, data analytics, that's all him. Um, and then he's really just brilliant about, um, you know, he's ran a company where it's, it went from two people in his garage to IPO. Um, and so he's really gone through all these big org decisions as well in terms of hiring hundreds of people, everything from bonus structure to kind of hire, like whatever your leadership structure looks like. Um, and so we're very collaborative on those big things, but definitely we, we focus on, you know, our own pillars. I do a lot of the marketing, the, the sales, the consumer insights, and that's kind of really how we split it up. Do you have any advice, Jessica, for founders on how to go about hiring at, at different stages of your business? Yes. So, you know, in the beginning, you need um, generalists. I think people who know how to both think big picture, but actually has to do the detailed execution. But by definition of a startup, you have huge plans to change the world, right? <laughs> change culture, impact the world, but you have a very small team and very small budget. And so because of that, you need big thinkers, but you need doers. And so that's, uh, that's, that's what, how we saw the first, that's how you should see, I believe, like the first kind of stage of your, of your business. And then as you grow, um, and once you've kind of realized the core plumbing of how your business works, and you've proven out some of those things, then you can start bringing in more kind of managers. But even through, I would say, um, and all the stages are a little bit, uh, 
kind of mushy now, but I would say even through Series A, everyone has to be people that execute. There's no room for just managers alone. Um, everyone has to manage themselves, manage other people, but then actually get the job done. Um, and then I think as you scale to like a B, C, that's when uh, it just makes sense to kind of have more of a uh, managing senior leadership. But for startups, you definitely have to be a doer. <laughs> you know, Jessica, I, I suppose that people will be writing books on how to be a remote leader. Uh, what challenges have you faced and new ideas that you've surfaced to, to lead your work from home team? Oh, that is, I would love to read that book, David, because I think we're all <laughs> trying to learn about that now. And I have been reading whatever I, I can on it. I would say, well, I start with like, what's the biggest difference? I think you miss out on the casual conversations, uh, the, the, the two-minute conversation before a meeting starts, uh, the joke that happens when you're kind of catch each other in the hallway. And I think that's really hard to replicate on um, video calls alone because you, it starts, everyone's just sitting there and you feel like you just have to go at it. And startups are already so stressful and hardworking enough that what we had to do is kind of build in some buffer time, especially with our core team to kind of talk about random things or to laugh or to say, what is that statue behind you, you know? And that takes intentionality because it's so easy to say, okay, what are we getting done? Um, but, you know, it's kind of bringing in some of that that human side of it. You know, we just hired three people that I've never seen in, in person and it's very weird. Um, but I think the benefit of this is I do think due to this pandemic, work is going to look different forever. And so the good thing is I think we can start building that intentionality and that relationship building um, in this new world from the start. Uh, and I, I think the other key learning is like, you know, not everybody is the same. So take time to talk to each person individually and say, how can I best support you during this time? Some people actually would rather get the job done and not have chit chat because they'd rather spend time with their family and they'd lean that balance. So I think it's just about both as a cohesive culture, how, you know, what are our principles? And then individually, how do I serve each uh, team member? What do you think the balance will be between working in the office versus remote as, as, as things evolve and we get out of this mess? Yeah, I, I really strongly believe it's going to be like a, uh, you know, three days in the office, two days not. Uh, that's what we're going to implement. Uh, or it's just, I mean, it depends on your stage. It depends on the type of company, you know, because some companies, I mean, some roles have to be really in person. But I think in general, I think what I do love about um, what we're all experiencing on a global level is that you can still get work done without, and integrate your family life and your personal life. Um, and I, what I do love is the fact that my kids can come in here at any point. And a year ago, I would be mortified. <laughs> and now <laughs> I'd probably put them on my lap and give them a kiss and say, meet Mr. Novak. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I have a really uh, amazing, like fun, inspiring story, actually, um, that I always, it was around April, this was like right, you know, COVID and this pandemic was very fresh around then. So everyone was trying to still be very buttoned up um, on Zoom and everything. And I had a major call with uh, a Fortune 500 company, like a big one. You probably know that person, David. I won't say any names. 
And I was really nervous. I was like, okay, here I am. This is my chance. I can sell in here. Um, and then uh, I was with the head buyer. And then my daughter, who is, by the way, 13, okay? She's not three. She walks in in a green crayon costume, okay? With the hat and everything. And she starts going like this on my Zoom. And I'm like, um, okay, no, get out. And I started sweating. And it was a little awkward because now it's a little bit more normalized, but then it was still pretty formal. And so I was embarrassing, kind of like, go out, go out. And then I lost my train of thought. And then I kind of stumbled and got back into it. And, you know, we got through the meeting. And at the end, I was like, Kayla, how could you have done this to me? This was such a big meeting and you're not three years old. And I will never forget, I got an email around 5.45 that night. And it was from that head buyer. And what she said was, Jessica, that meeting and your crayon was the best part of my day. Thank you so much for sharing your crayon with me. And she basically made it, made me, put me at ease because she probably knew that I was freaking out and saying, you know what? This is the world we're living in. I get it. Don't worry about it. And I just think that's the type of leadership that we need to have. Um, and so, yeah. So I, yeah. anyway, there's that's a, kind of a side There's a piece story. of humanity, right? A yes. piece of humanity on, on Zoom. And, you know, to have a little kid that can, you know, do the, be a crayon says something about <laughs> you too. You know, I, I know you're an avid learner and, and I know you met with uh, Indra Nui, the, the former yes, chairman and, of, of, of uh, PepsiCo, when I told you that she was passionate about caregiving. Yeah. What did you learn by comparing notes with her? Uh, well, one, hearing her talk about caregiving on such a global level with her exposure and experience was so validating. It was, um, it made it so real. And I think having someone in her position to be able to be a spokesperson for this, people will listen. And so uh, I think, well, the, so that was the thing that just struck us most was she was so knowledgeable, so articulate. She is brilliant and her heart is, is gold. Um, and she is uh, really kind of utilizing her position, her platform, her voice. She is going to make a difference and, um, and she sees it and she led, you know, thousands of people and she's a global leader. So I think, so that's the, that's the first thing is that it, it's, um, it is a real thing and it gave us even more of a boost to say this is real and she loved our approach. Um, and then I, I think with her, she really did inspire us that it is a systemic problem. So we always knew and typically we think of caregiving because we all come to it typically through a personal experience. So we know what happened Personally, individually, we see what it did to our family or a friend's family. Um, and then you kind of start hearing stories. But again, because we're in this phase in our society and culture where we don't often talk about it, we don't even have terms yet for it, um, it can often get lost. Um, and she really kind of emphasized that our systems have to change. Our institutions have to change. Our policies have to change. She's talking at the government level. And hearing her speak like that uh, made opened our eyes to say, you are exactly right. And it really had an impact early on how we kind of started building the fabric of Ionic Care. And that's kind of how we're approaching it as well. It, it gave you even more conviction that you're heading in the right direction, which yeah, I think all of us need when we're, we're trying to break new ground. 
You know, Jessica, it's been so great hearing about Ionicare and how you're building the business. And, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about you now and, and okay. tell us about your, your upbringing. Okay. Well, I was born and raised in New Jersey and proud of it. <laughs> I'm the youngest of three kids with an awesome big brother and big sister. And my parents were just incredible people. My dad is a psychiatrist. And so as you can imagine, I grew up getting so many lectures. Um, like if I did anything wrong, I wouldn't get grounded or things taken away, but he would just sit me down and spend hours walking around me talking. <laughs> and I hated it at that point. But I look back at those lectures and as an adult, I really appreciate everything that he instilled in me. Um, he was just a huge, fan of just uh, shaping growth mindset and self-confidence. And then my mom was just the most supportive person. She would do whatever it takes to kind of make anything happen that I was interested in. And so I just really credit my parents for establishing this foundation of believing in myself and just going after what I wanted to do. Jessica, do you have an early childhood story that, that you like to tell that will tell us a, a lot about you? Well, it's interesting. Uh, this is also a story around what I was just saying and how my you know, parents just instilled this self-confidence, which I really appreciated. Uh, so in middle school, I came back and I said, I'm going to run for you know, student office. And my dad was saying, great, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, uh, I'm going to run for secretary. And he was like, great, you know, that's wonderful. Um, but can you tell me the difference between what a secretary does versus the president? And, you know, this is middle school and high school. And so at that time I said, well, no, I, I don't really know the difference. And he said, then why don't you go for a president? And I said, well, I just thought that that's kind of, you know, what you do. It's my first time. Maybe it's because I'm a girl. And he stopped me right there. And he said, it doesn't matter whether you're a girl or boy, Asian, color of skin, tall, short, et cetera. If you have a vision for what you want to do, you go for it. Don't let anything hold you back. And so I remember saying, okay, let me do it. And so I ran this whole campaign. I said, say yes to Jess for president. And I made all these fortune cookies and put all the messages in there. And I ended up winning that whole campaign. And I ran every year of my high school year. So I was president every single year of my high school. Um, and it was just something very early on for me that I take with me even now as a female founder and entrepreneur and leader is that belief that if you have a vision, it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are, what you look like, or people's perceptions are of you, you go for it because it's the vision that's going to drive you. And so I'm just, so that was a very pivotal moment for me. I love that. Say yes to Jess. That's great advice from your father. Now you went on to, uh, to Brown, uh, which is a great school, and, and you majored in anthropology. Uh, how did that shape your business approach? Oh my gosh, I am so grateful that I did that. And um, when I went to school, I was like, okay, this is what I really love doing. I have no idea what job this is going to turn into. But ever since I was 10, when people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I don't know, but I want to study people. And I've always been so intrigued by our culture, our backgrounds, our upbringing, our situational experiences, and how all of those things literally shape the way we see the world. And so when I got to college, anthropology was just that. It was digging into history and cultures and all the different ways communities live and interact and communicate. And so I 
you know, I, the way I see that now is that that is really what business is all about. <laughs> you know, what we're ultimately doing as business creators, entrepreneurs, leaders, is that we're trying to create a solution to make someone's life better and to have, let them flourish. And how can you do that if you don't know what that person is about and how they're shaped and how they view the world? So it absolutely is the core of the way we approach marketing, the way we approach even the solution we're creating, the way I lead, it's so rooted in the person. And so anthropology is really the core of how I operate today. That's incredible. You know, you seem to really focus on the problems that impact people. And that really drives your ideation process and, and your light bulb moments. Is that, is that a correct conclusion? Yes. I. It's interesting. I spend the bulk of the time focusing on the problem and the existing behavior. And I think, you know, David, like you were saying, I think that's kind of my anthropology background. Because people always say, how do you get a business started? What do you do? And so often we jump to execution. But how are you supposed to kind of create a solution if you don't really understand what you're solving? And so um, even with this, we went and read uh, 14th century death manuals. We read all these journals and research from doctors. Like we really dug into the problem that exists today and how it existed over the last decades to understand how we can move it forward in a, in a practical way. Yeah. Well, I love that, that focus, uh, you know, finding those problems and then solving them. You know, at the age of 19, you started Jessica's Wonders. Now that's a baked goods company and you did it right out of your, your college dorm room. Tell us a story about how that happened. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I I did not intend to start a business. I was an anthropology major. I walked into this pizzeria my sophomore summer, and this pizzeria was called Fellini's in Providence. And I saw this plate of banana bread, and I said, wait a second, who made this? I can do it so much better. <laughs> and it was saran wrapped and it had a toothpick with a little, you know, sign that said $1.69. So I knew it wasn't like a professional company. And so he said... Um, why? You think you could do better? And I said, absolutely. So he's like, all right, bring it in. So I brought in my special banana bread that I named after my friend Kelly, who was obsessed with bananas. And I brought it in and it sold out that day. And he was like, wait, hold on. I'm a pizzeria. This is summertime. I don't sell out of baked goods. Bring in another one. So I kept bringing it in and he kept selling out. And after a while, I said, wait, I want to make sure people know that I made this. So I made signs out of construction paper and markers, and I called it Jessica's Wonders. And the slogan was, mm, so good, it'll make you wonder. <laughs> and it just, after a while, I was just like, wait, hold on. You need to pay me for this. Like, it was, that was how far away I was from business is that I wasn't even charging him for all these <laughs> bread, banana breads that he was selling out of. Um, but long story short, I ended up you know, continuing to sell to 13 different hotspots around campus. I was literally baking out of my little tiny efficiency oven in my dorm room. And then Brown had its very first uh, business plan competition. And so I did an independent study with Professor Hazeltine, which was actually the same professor that helped the Nantucket Nectars guys, Tom Scott and Tom First, start their business. And so he said, okay, we could do an independent study, but you have to enter this business plan. And I said, okay, fine. And so as I did the business plan, 
um, you know, I loved the process of thinking about all the different aspects that you had to do to create a business. And there were 77 teams and I won the competition. <laughs> and, and so after winning that, um, I ended up selling more. And then uh, one of the mentors and alum kind of took me under his wing. And I ended up raising $1 million my senior year of college. And so I had braces at that time. I was like 20 years old. I looked like I was 13. And we quickly grew the business to over $4 million in revenue in just two years, um, getting distribution along the entire East Coast. Uh, so it was an, an incredible experience. And that kind of is what introduced me to what entrepreneurship was. <laughs> wow, that's a that's a very quick start. You know, you you mentioned you know you're 19, you look young, you had the braces. How did you how did you get people to take you serious as a business person back then? Yeah, I had to learn that the hard way. Um, I realized that I have a lot of energy and passion and everyone talks about that. And I think that's so true. Like I saw a vision that this could be like the Ben and Jerry's of baked goods. And so I presented it that way. I always had people taste the product so they could enjoy it. Um, but I realized that I had to back it up with a lot of um, kind of financial planning or the plans of how I'm going to actually execute it. Um, because you can have passion, but especially being so young and having a bubbly personality like I, I have, I realized I had to give people assurance that I was also very planned out and I knew what I, how I was going to actually do this. And so the combination of those two things made people um, trust in me. And I'm so grateful that they gave me this chance. And all these angel investors, I invested a million dollars in me when I was so young. It, um, I really credit them for giving me this opportunity. And so what happened to the company? Yeah, so after a couple of years of running it, and we were all in the Stop and Shop supermarkets, um, we just, I just had this opportunity to have a sale of it. And it was, um, it was a good sale. And I was able to then go to business school afterwards. Um, and that's really when I kind of really processed everything that happened. So as you can imagine, it was such a whirlwind. Um, there was a point where through that experience being so young, I slept at the office. <laughs> I didn't have anything else other than to, I was just pouring everything into the business. Um, and so I didn't have any kind of life work balance. And so I learned a lot of really core life lessons through Jessica's Wonders. Um, and business school really helped me process uh, strategically what happened, what we did right, what we could have done better. Um, and so I really appreciate that time that I had there to process everything with my classmates. You know, speaking of processing that, you know, what would be the top three bits of advice you'd give aspiring entrepreneurs based on that experience? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is you don't need to have a background or all this experience in what you have a vision for. So often we get roadblocked by saying, well, I don't have a background in baking. Like I wasn't a professional baker. All I did was have um, a vision for this product and this brand and kind of what we could create. And what I did was just look for someone that just knew a bit better than me. And so that's the other thing. We often think we need this famous expert or this famous person or the best mentor in the world in order for me to move forward. But you just need to find someone that's just you know, knows a bit more. And so the person that really helped me learn how to bake on a commercial scale was an owner of a local bagel store around campus. I walked in and I just said, can you help me 
kind of figure out how to get this one loaf recipe to, you know, 50 pounds. And he said, okay, well, come tomorrow morning at 4 a.m. because that's when I started. And so I was there in front of his door at 3.45 a.m. with two coffees in hand. And I said, I'm ready to go. And so that eagerness is what made him feel like, I'll invest in you and help and mentor you to teach you everything. So I think that's the thing. It's just, um, you just need to go forward and just find one person that knows just a little bit more than you. I think the other thing is make sure that you find people who believe in your vision just as much as you do. Um, And so, you know, with our investors, you know, you have to find people that like not are only looking for a financial return and just seeing it as a financial investment, but how are you going to do it? And that how is really important to get aligned with. Great. You know, I was really surprised, Jessica, to learn that your your next career step was brand management at Kraft Foods. You know, yes. you go from being this entrepreneur into a big company like Kraft. That had to be quite an adjustment. It was, you know, but you know, I I feel like I was I was desiring it. You know, because I started my first company and it was really my first professional job, starting my own thing all on my own, I kind of wanted to learn from the big guys. Because the thing that I hated hearing was people would say, oh, that's great that you have this big goods company, but you don't know how the real world works. I'm like, hmm, let let me figure out how the real world works. And so I wanted to go to Kraft Foods to get that apples to apples comparison of what it was like to work at a startup food business out of a dorm room to a Fortune 500. And it was incredible to see kind of the similarities and the differences and what's done well in a big company and what's done better in a small company. Um, But I wanted to stay in the same industry. So I didn't have the different industry to kind of skew that point of view. Um, And so I loved kind of learning how to run a bigger team, uh, bigger finance, running a bigger P&L and having uh, interdisciplinary teams. And so I learned so much. But after three years, the thing that I missed was the kind of startup grind, (laughs) kind of like being really close to the consumer and being part of that initial vision and creation process. And so um, that's when I kind of started my next company. Yeah. And and so you went on to found uh, Bobico. Tell us uh, the genesis of this company. It's really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I was on maternity leave from Kraft, actually, and I had my first child. I now have three kids. Uh, And when Kayla was an infant, my eyes were opened up to the world of parenting. And this was right when mommy blogging was coming out and all the brands were just showing parenting as this calm and beautiful thing. And I realized, hey, that's not reality. And so I saw this opportunity to create a brand that was very personality driven um, and to create products that really focused on the quality time we spend with our kids. And so the way I always thought it is, you know, we can buy a lot of things for our kids, but the most important thing that we can give to our kids is our time and attention, but it's hard to do that consistently when we're juggling everything and we're tired. And so we created these activity boxes where it just came to your house every month and you just open up and all the materials and instructions are there for you to just enjoy and spend good time with your kids. Oh, that's great. Now, I I understand you learned how to put your initial Babaco product together by learning how to sew on YouTube. Yes. That's right. Because before we came out with activity boxes, our first product was this uh, infant car seat cover to protect the baby from the cold and the wind. And again, I didn't know how to sew. The last time I sewed was 
in sixth grade home economics class. <laughs> um, so what I did was I just kind of watched a ton of YouTube videos. I got material. Um, and the when I had to do a certain pattern that was too difficult to even learn how to do through YouTube, I stapled it, I duct taped it. I just did whatever I needed to do to get to a certain prototype. So then I could take it over to the local seamstress at a dry cleaners, you know, the local dry cleaners. And I just said to her, I said, can you make this look better than what it is right now? Obviously, I don't want duct tape on it. Um, and so she did. and. Um, same thing. She kind of took me under her wing and, and started teaching me what patterns were and how you really sew certain patterns. And so that's how we got our first products out the door. And then we ended up selling thousands of those through Bye Bye Baby and, and um, Amazon. And uh, we just grew the business. But it really started with YouTube videos and finding that one person that just knows a little bit more than you. <laughs> so you really help families spend quality time together through the products that you created. And you started out by selling to big box retailers, as I understand it. And then you went to uh, a subscription model. Yes. What drove that decision? I, it's kind of, again, if we are creating solutions for our consumers and I just dug in to what they were doing, what they were looking at, what their needs were. And I realized, especially with the rise of social media at that time, that there was this opportunity to directly communicate and have this real relationship with the moms and dads that, and families that we were serving. And so when we were in big box retailer, you know, we were work with the great buyers, but we had no personal connection or awareness or understanding of what each individual consumer was doing. And so that shift was really just out of the intent of getting closer to the consumer and building our direct relationship with them. Now you ended up selling Babaco, and, and, but you stayed on as president for a couple of years. Uh, what triggered your decision to leave? Oh gosh, so much. But I guess I would say, you know, there was just an opportunity when you think about what you want to do with the business, you often don't know how it's all going to play out and what the exit strategy will be. And we're just so focused on serving our community the best. Um, but I just started realizing that fundamentally the physical box subscription directly to consumers, it was not the best way that we can really serve them and that it would be better as part of a bigger company. And so we had books in every single box and, you know, we had barefoot books in there and it was by far the best boxes that people loved. Uh, this is a global children's publishing company. They have incredible kind of uh, global stories that all with the mission of opening their minds and opening their worlds. And so I got to know the founder. She's a female founder um, in Cambridge, so close to me. And we just started having coffees and dinners together. And the more we talked about our vision, we realized that together we can make it even stronger and better. And so it was such an organic and natural kind of progression. And so we, they acquired um, Babaco and I stayed on as president for a little over two and a half years. It was just an incredible experience. And we had thousands of sales, um, direct sales people selling our products. And so I loved leading kind of the thousands of people and um, just really giving them a sense of purpose of what they were doing and what they were sharing with people. Jessica, I had a lot of fun getting ready for this. And I went to your Twitter account and I, I, I read a number of your tweets and I want to I ask you a few questions about them. I learned that, that you really like the idea of reverse pitches 
where rather than entrepreneurs pitching their ideas, industry experts give you the key problem for their creators to solve. Can you talk a little about that? Yes. Oh my gosh. I am a big believer of this. The more common thing is for um, at conferences to have entrepreneurs and they pitch their idea, right? Um, but I think what's more impactful are all these executives and leaders and industry experts who are living and breathing these problems day after day and they're trying to solve it, but they're solving it in a certain way, but they have all these other ideas of how um, other solutions can make their impact stronger. And so I, I, these reverse pitches is basically the total opposite where up there you have this panel and you have these industry experts and they share what they're seeing and the problems that they're seeing and why it's a problem and why we need to be concerned, but they have no idea how to solve it, but they really understand what's wrong. And so we as entrepreneurs in the audience, we can hear all of that insight. And the way that we're built is to say, oh my gosh, well, why don't we take this part from A and this part from B um, and collaborate and kind of create a solution together. But I think that's so effective. And I think uh, we should have more and more of these reverse pitches versus only hearing the idea. Yeah, there's your problem solving orientation yes. again. You know, <laughs> I love this tweet. You said you can take the entrepreneur out of the startup hustle, but you can't take the startup hustle out of the entrepreneur. What do you, what do you mean by that? Oh my gosh. I think it's just what I realized after being at the very beginning of a startup and then even being at um, an organization like Kraft Foods or being on the venture side, I realized that like entrepreneurs are built with this internal drive, grit, hustle. And actually that's what we enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> like, and even if we're in this, um, a bigger organization that has a lot more structure and probably a lot more cushion to risk, uh, what we crave is to kind of keep pushing and pushing the boundaries forward um, and pushing the team forward to make it even better. And so I think there's benefits in being in both types of organizations, but I realize once you're a startup entrepreneur, you can't take that hustle out of them. <laughs> You know, here's another interesting tweet that you had. You said, just spoke on this panel about women and leadership. Half the audience was male. That's how we make an impact. Yeah. Explain that. Uh, I think women in leadership and moving forward, any kind of minority group, if you will, is that we need to have a conversation with every single person involved. Because it's so often when we have women leadership discussions, especially the type where you want to move something forward, we're only speaking to each other, other women. <laughs> and that's not how we're going to actually change our culture or how things are done. We need to integrate. Um, in the real world, there, there are men and women, and we have to have this conversation um, to figure out solutions to work together on and to hear each other's input because so much uh, of the time is that we are making assumptions and don't, we don't really know the other side. And so having conversations together is actually really important. So I feel like that we apply that to kind of any other topic. Jessica, this has been so much fun. And now I want to have a little bit more with you with a lightning round of Q&A. So here we go. You ready for this? Yes, I'm ready. Uh, all right. What three words best describe you? Okay. Energetic. Um, creative, and heartfelt. If you could be one person for a day beside yourself, who would it be and why? Mm, I would love to be my mom when I was my, when she was my age. 
Why is that? I I think it would just give me so much understanding because I know I I knew her when she was an adult. And I just, I, I think it would say so much about, it would show me so much about the difference of um, the equality of, of, of women, uh, the whole culture. She was an immigrant that came from Korea. Um, so uh, it would just be incredible to tie what I know intellectually, but into a human soul that I cared and loved so deeply. And it would just probably be life-changing to be her for one day. What's your biggest pet peeve? Um, lack of progress. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise. What's something about you that few people would know? Um, I actually was going to be a violist at one point in my life. I went to uh, the pre-college Juilliard school. I had one of those violin, I don't know if you know about the violin hickey, but <laughs> like, play so much that you have this big hickey looking like mark on your neck. And I loved music so much. And I, those were my first jobs. I would play gigs. And, um, and I remember, uh, you know, practicing three hours a day uh, and just loving it. I love chamber music. And so I don't think people would ever guess that I, I would want to have been a musician. <laughs> uh, do you have another hidden talent? <laughs> um, let's see. So another hidden talent is... Well, I used to be an aerobics instructor, but by, just by saying aerobics really dates me, I think, because who says aerobics <laughs> anymore? So I totally was a 90s kind of aerobics with the headband and everything, but I would teach um, classes. I did it for like six, seven years, uh, and uh, I still enjoy it. Uh, so That's great. What's your favorite idea that you've had so far? I mean, I feel like Ionic hair is life's work. It's got to, <laughs> I how can I not say, say Ionicare? I mean, this yeah. is the culmination I, of, I feel like, of decades. And But but all of this started with this bakery that, uh, that you oh, had, you know, years yes. ago. I okay. remember that, you know. So what's your favorite baked good? Okay. So definitely my favorite baked good is molten chocolate cake. I am a chocolate girl, and when it oozes out, there's nothing better. Well, well Jessica, it's been just fantastic uh, catching up with you. I mean, you are an amazing leader and an inspiring leader. And uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your, your wisdom and what you're learning about leadership and your journey with others. So thank you very much. Thank you, David. It's such an honor to be here. I respect you so much. And so thank you for, you know, uh, using your voice to teach us all about leadership. Um, it impacts so many of us. Make no mistake, Jessica is a hard-driving, super-sharp business person. But in every venture and in every role, she is always attuned to the problem her customer is facing. She feels it at a human level, and that empathy motivates her to go out and do excellent work. It's such a winning approach, and it's one we can all definitely learn from. So let me offer you a bit of coaching. It's so easy as leaders to let layers pile up between us and the people we actually serve at the end of the day. This week, as a part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to brainstorm three ways you can connect with customers. Really try to understand and empathize with the problems they're experiencing. I just know that this can lead to the motivation you need to solve their problems on a human level. 
So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders solve problems on a human level. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be. 